Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Så er vi tilbage i forretningen, som man siger på amerikansk, efter vi har holdt en relativt lang vinterferie. Vi har lavet aftaler med aktivister, forskere, tænkere og forfattere og alle mulige andre, som vi gerne vil introducere jer for, og som vi mener har noget at bidrage med i den helt store samtale om samfundets indretning. Vi tror jo på, som vi har sagt rigtig mange gange, at ordentlige samtaler er med til at ændre verden langsomt. Og verden, det er lige fra handelsaftalerens indhold til den måde, vi anskuer vores forhold til naturen og os selv på. Den første samtale er med den, der måske har det cooleste navn af alle, vi har talt med her i Langsomme Samtaler. Det er nemlig den kanadiske forfatter, journalist og vært på podcasten Tech Won't Save Us, Paris Marx. Altså navnet er Paris Marx. Og jeg starter samtalen med at spørge, hvor det navn kommer fra og hvad det betyder. Paris Marx udgav sidste år en fantastisk god bog, der hedder The Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. Grundgrebet i bogen, det er, at Paris Marx går de løfter igennem, som vi har fået fra tech over de seneste 3-4 årtier, om hvordan tech kunne løse problemerne helt uden politik, om hvordan alt fra transport i byer til indretning af vores sundhedsvæsen til udbringning af pakker, alle de problemer, som kan blive til voldsomme politiske slagsmål, og som vi har på Dagbladet Information mener er politiske konflikter. Alle de problemer tilbyder tech at ophæve i en højere enhed, og det lykkes tech at drive sig selv frem som samfundets frelser på en måde, så tech-pionerende bliver gjort til helte i store Hollywood-spillefilm i journalistikken og bliver gjort til forbillede af deres tids politikere. Der er vi heldigvis ikke længere. Men tech nåede i de 3-4 årtier, hvor en meget stor del af offentligheden var cheerleaders for det næste teknologiske fremskridt, at ændre den måde, vores samfund er indrettet på, vores kommunikative infrastruktur og vores arbejdsmarked så radikalt, at vi nu står i en helt ny verden. Grunden til, at tech kunne ændre vores samfund så indgribende, fortæller Paris Marx, det er, at der simpelthen har flyttet så meget kapital de sidste 3-4 årtier, som er blevet kastet efter virksomheder, der blev ved med at love, at hvis bare I kaster nogle penge efter os, skal vi nok erobre et marked, etablere et monopol, og så får I jeres afkast tilbage. Sagen er bare, forklarer Max, at langt de fleste tech-virksomheder aldrig nogensinde har givet overskud. Uber har endnu ikke givet overskud et eneste år. Men det, som Uber har præsteret, er i rigtig mange byer at smadre den gamle transportorden, at drive gamle virksomheder ud af drift og redefinere hele spillet. Så man kan sige, tech kom, så udkonkurrerede konkurrenterne og etablerede noget, der kunne minde om monopol, uden nogensinde at være en bæredygtig forretning. Og grunden til, at det kunne lade sig gøre, var på grund af enormt meget risikovillig venturekapital og det, som bliver kaldt for cheap money, det vil sige, Pengene flød rundt uden grænser. Vi står på en måde for enden af den historie, med en erkendelse af, at løfterne viser sig at være løgn. Men vi står også midt i historien, fordi vi er blevet afhængige af dem, som vi nu har afsløret som løgnere. Hvordan vi skal takle hele den konflikt, hvad der er af håb i det, og hvad der er af erfaringer fra de 3-4 årtier, vi har tumlet med tech, alt det vil Paris Marx udrede i den samtale, som følger her. Well, hello, Paris Marx, and thank you so much for joining us and taking your time and talking to us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, let's dive into it. Is that okay with you? Sure thing. Yep, let's do it. You know, the first time people hear, they hear your name, they always say, well, that is the coolest name in the world, Paris Marx. Also, because we're in this newspaper, we like Karl Marx. He's, he's a popular <laughs> figure here. At, you can probably meet someone in Copenhagen who wouldn't think of your last name as a cool name. So I must ask you first, what's the story behind the name? Do you have the coolest parents in the world or did you come up with it yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably more of the latter, I would say. Um, you know, 
it's it's funny you say that because of course the name can get used in in very different ways right some people will look at it and say uh that that's so cool that's so interesting i want to see what this person has to say but especially when you're thinking about you know the discourse in the united states it can also be used as oh look at the name of this person who wrote this article we can immediately write it off as some sort of like thing we don't need to pay attention to it's just a lefty communist you know whatever right um yeah so i i find it really interesting to see how people react to the name in particular um but yeah, it's great. <laughs> and because I think here, I was born in the 70s. So so I was born just after 68. And there were a lot of parents giving their children names after Che Guevara, for instance. So it's so, right. <laughs> so if you're born in Denmark, people say, hey, probably a kid of the 70s. Well, your work is, is about tech, whether it's your podcast or your articles or, or the book. And I get the feeling when I read it that you've been into it for a long time and also that you've maybe been enchanted by it as a younger person, but I don't know that. How, how was your first encounter with tech? No, it's it's a good uh, it's good estimation. Yeah, you know, I've been writing about technology for probably about seven years now, um, you know, for various publications and things. But yeah, my interest in technology certainly goes back much further than that. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, I was kind of coding websites in, you know, basic and in, in HTML and CSS and things like that for people who are familiar with it. Um, and, you know, I, I was interested in technology more generally, you know, I, I followed a lot of tech news. Um, and I certainly went through a period where I would have been much more optimistic about the potential of technology, the potential of it to, you know, of digital technology in particular, I should say, because, you know, when we say technology, that can mean a lot of different things. But I think especially in this moment, when we say technology, what we're often referring to is digital technology products that are coming out of Silicon Valley, right? And so I certainly had a moment where I, I bought into some of these ideas around automation and, and things like that and what it could mean for society and how it was going to have all these transformative effects that were going to, you know, free us from having to work so much and all these sorts of things. Um, and of course, I, I had a wake up call like many people um, as I started to pay more attention to the critical side of these things. And in particular, that kind of, you know, you referenced my book and, and that kind of came in part through seeing what was being proposed in cities through smart cities or whether it was Uber and, and ride hailing services or self-driving cars and all the promises being made about how this would, you know, make cities so much better, would make transportation more efficient. And what we found after a few years was that it was very unlikely to do many of those things at all. You know, if we look at the transportation system today and compare it to 10 years ago, it's probably not very different, right? People are usually getting around in the same way that they did in the past. And these these tech products haven't made a significant difference to changing that. And so that was a really big part of kind of having my realization around what technology was actually doing, what impact it was actually having, and the need to think more critically about these technologies, rather than just, you know, a, a company says that their tech product is going to do all these amazing things, and we just fall for it and start gushing over it and things like that. Very often when we talk about technology and also when you talk about it on, on the podcast and write about it in your book, we think of it as, as a common subject, as an actor. And we speak of Silicon Valley wants this or Silicon Valley claims that and they, they're allied with the government like this. And I do that uh, all, all the time. And then then when I hear others do it, then I think, who actually is the subject behind the subject? Who Who is this actor? Which interest and person is it composed of? Yeah, and it can be many different things, right? Um, I, I think it's a really convenient shorthand, right, to be able to refer to Silicon Valley. And in most cases, people know what you mean broadly when you say that. Um, but it can mean many different things, right? When you say Silicon Valley, you can be specifically referring to the tech industry and the tech companies that are in that specific part of California, right? And sometimes that is what you mean when you refer to it. But often I think when people say Silicon Valley, what they mean is kind of an idea of tech of of technology and a particular kind of set of companies that are developing and creating particular companies um, or particular technologies and products and, and things like that that we can that we uh, associate with the tech industry as it exists today, right? Um, and so that can mean Amazon, even though Amazon is located in Seattle, or that can even mean Spotify, even though Spotify is based in Sweden, right? Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's companies that um, are located in the, the San Francisco Bay Area, but what it means is that they are kind of um, 
inspired by or kind of following a particular model that was created or that was put together in that particular geographic place and then pushed out to the rest of the world, right? In terms of this is succeeding really well in this particular place. There are companies that are making a lot of money um, as a result of adopting this model and pushing technologies in these ways. And so then many other jurisdictions in the United States, but also places in countries around the world said, we want to get in on this. We want to try to emulate this so that we can you know, have these benefits, that we can build these big companies, create a unicorn as, as what is one of the terms that's often used in Silicon Valley um, so that we can do this as well. Right. And so this this idea or this kind of approach that was successful in this one place has now kind of gone global. And, you know, you hear about Silicon Savannah or Silicon Alley or, you know, all these different parts of the world that are trying to get their own kind of version of Silicon Valley. Um, it doesn't always work out as, as it did in, in California. Um, but yeah, so it, it can refer to many things, but I think in general, it refers to a particular type of, of company that is associated with this particular model that comes out of uh, that part of California. You mentioned in the book that the story that they like to tell about themselves, that it's based on this entrepreneurial idea of individualism, but also connected to some kind of counterculture uh, background, at least, or, or, or history. And you hear about these people who drop out of college, they start on their own in their basement, and they work with a couple of good buddies, and all of a sudden <laughs> they, they make millions. And I think it has a certain ring to it that at first made it appealing to a lot of what we call cultural leftists here, people who don't understand Marx and certainly are not called Marxists as, as their last name, but but like the cultural uh, liberation, how would you characterize this story that they made about themselves? Yeah, it, it's a very attractive story, as you say, right? The idea that just some people, you know, working in their garages to develop this technology, and then it turns into this major kind of world-defining company, right? Um, the, the history of Silicon Valley is a bit more nuanced than that kind of story that they like to tell. You know, Silicon Valley is really born out of a lot of public subsidies that go into the Bay Area in World War II, right, to develop aviation technologies and military technologies that are going to be used against the Nazis, and then, you know, gets further funding through the Cold War period as the United States is kind of having a competition um, with the Soviet Union, particularly around space um, exploration, but later other forms of technologies that, you know, come to develop into the internet and the various computer technologies and things like that. Right. Um, and so, you know, having a, an industry that is based around the military is not always very <laughs> attractive for people who like to think of themselves as kind of countercultural and things like that. Right. And so in the sixties and seventies, there's obviously the hippie movement in the United States. And one kind of branch of that, of that counterculture is one that is particularly interested in the ways that technologies can um, empower the individual um, and also kind of, at least rhetorically, take power away from um, the government and the state and kind of hierarchical corporations, right? So the idea is, say, something like the personal computer, um, which is you know, really promoted by Apple in the 70s and 80s, I believe it is, with the original kind of Macintosh computers, um, you know, Steve Jobs promotes that as it's not only going to empower you as an individual in the workforce or, or in your life, it's particularly positioned as a, as a work product, but it's also going to take power away from these hierarchical organizations in society, um, you know, that that we don't want controlling us, right? The corporations and things like that. And of course, in that moment, it's, it's convenient because because uh, this hippie movement has kind of failed. And a lot of the people who were involved with, in it, who were often kind of white people with, you know, educated backgrounds, they weren't al always poor people, were kind of moving into the regular kind of labor force, right? We're taking jobs at these companies. And so it's a very convenient narrative that gets promoted around this time that, you know, you can go and work for the big kind of corporation, but you have this kind of internal spirit that you're pushing back against it, right? Because you're adopting these tech products and things like that. Um, and of course, that then kind of hits up against the neoliberalism of of the 80s as Ronald Reagan and certainly Thatcher in the in the UK and you know other governments around the world are pushing neoliberal ideas right so um you know we want to move away from the state doing things even though the state has been really key to um financing technological development in the United States and continued to do so even while Reagan was in power and Reagan was um also helping to push this narrative that the tech industry was about entrepreneurs and not about you know public spending and things like that um 
and so you, so you have this kind of individualism that's wrapped up in technology that we can empower the individual that it's about entrepreneurs kind of changing society and doing so through the free market and also that technology is the way that we you know make things better right we don't need to think about the politics of various things we don't need to use the state in order to um, take actions to make society better as long as we just develop new technologies and advance the technologies that we have we are going to be able to you know improve society right um i think that we can certainly you know there are many ways that technology has improved society it's not to say that that has not happened um but often that the ability to use technologies in that way is associated with a political project that wants to ensure the benefits of those technologies are going to you know benefit the public right and that's really what we don't have and this kind of ideology this particular idea that emerges from silicon valley that's wrapped up in um the neoliberalism of the period um is really beneficial in making us think about technology making us think about the economy making us think about our roles in all those things very differently um than we did before you mentioned also in the book that the media have been playing a role like a kind of public cheerleaders for Silicon Valley. You, you mentioned specifically when it comes to transportation, but I also thought it's not many years ago that you saw these movies about Steve Jobs and, you know, there are these her heroic movies coming out. I doubt they'll make a heroic movie about Elon Musk now, but at, there was a sense maybe seven or eight years ago that, that they were still kind of heroes of our time and they had the role in civilization that the engineers had in the beginning of the 20th century that they what they invented would carry all of us forward what what role did the media play in constructing this narrative of, of silicon valley yeah a really damaging role right and it, it's it's interesting you say elon musk of course because one of the things that helped to develop his kind of profile and kind of send him into the position that he has held at least until recently you know there's much more critical kind of Uh, perspective on him now, I think, after the past year or two. Um, but he was, of course, the model for Marvel's Iron Man in the films that came out uh, about a decade or so ago. Um, they were supposed to be kind of based on him and idea of him. He made a cameo in the second Iron Man film, um, you know, and it was part of kind of building up this profile of this man that was apparently like a superhero, like in in the movie, who was doing all these things that was going to uh, event ele electric cars and, you know, solve the climate crisis and send us to Mars by developing these rockets and doing all these other amazing things. Right. And I think that his kind of reputation has very much come down to earth uh, in the, in the past year or so, as people have kind of woken up to what he, you know, who he actually is and what he's actually done, but creating that idea of Elon Musk and that this applies to many of the tech companies and tech founders was very much um, an active kind of participation or, or an active kind of collaboration with the media, right? That really wanted to buy into this notion that by just kind of praising these companies, that building up these, these technological products, this would solve many of the problems in society. And, and this, of course, goes back to general ideas that we have around progress, right? We achieve progress in human society by developing new technologies and kind of deploying them in society, right? This is the general idea that we have of how this works. And so naturally, you would believe that these companies that are being kind of hailed as, you know, developing the future, as, as creating the future, as thinking about the future, are going to do that by creating these, these various products and deploying them. And so the press is very involved in you know, kind of uh, helping them push that narrative to the public. And certainly there are times where there is critical reporting on these things. And we've seen much more of it since around 2016, when there was a notable kind of backlash to the tech industry and Facebook in particular. Um, but the industry has always played, especially, you know, the the tech media, um, you know, that specifically covers the tech industry and, and tech verticals of more mainstream publications, um, often you know hire people who are really interested in technology and who do really want to believe what these companies are are selling um and so then that gets reflected in the reporting that they ultimately do on the industry and of course i would argue that that has served us very poorly um because in many cases it has left us kind of unprepared to think critically about these technologies when they are pushed out into the world right if you think about you know back when facebook was uh really growing um, significantly, say in the the latter half of the first decade of the 2000s or the early 2010s, um, you know, we we 
probably could have used a lot more critical coverage of the potential impacts of a platform like that in that moment. Or say when Uber was rolled out um, around the same time and was growing in the early 2010s, there was a lot of positive coverage about what this company was going to do, what it was going to mean for transportation, um, while it was heavily exploiting these drivers who were driving the cars and you know saying it was going to solve traffic congestion and all these wonderful things in cities and it has not done any of those things right and now we see that the prices for these services for services like uber are are going up and they're kind of matching existing taxi uh prices and and so the revolution never really arrived but certainly some investors made a lot of money a- along the way um and and the media was a key part in allowing them to do that and so what we really need is a more critical media focus on these companies and hopefully that's something that we'll see more and more in the future. It's certainly something that I'm trying to encourage people <laughs> to do. <laughs> but I think there's actually also a bias because the tech industry to a certain extent helped us, helped the old media, many of the old newspapers. And I'm the leader of, a, of an old newspaper. And I I think we would have survived under all circumstances because of our special history. And we are so small that so we don't need a lot of money. But they actually gained us access to a new to a new audience, and and they made us relevant to someone who'd never pick up a, a paper. So I, I think that that it was also an easy romance for the media because we were attracting these people who knew these technologies. And looking at it today, I think most of the old mainstream media have all in all benefited from it. And now we are in this very weird situation. We're the publishers of Josana Zuber, for instance. So we're publishing her book, pushing her book. And we are, I'm sorry to admit it, we try to limit it, but we're exploiting data in exactly the same way that she is. We're writing critically about Facebook and we've done some experiments trying to do without Facebook, but it's very, very, very difficult. So actually it's also a difficult position if you want to be consequent and and really take yourself seriously to be critical against it. Oh, absolutely. You know, there there are definitely mixed incentives that are involved with with all these things, right? And and I don't like fault publications for taking advantage of the opportunities that are offered by various tech platforms like Facebook or Google or or what have you, right? Because this is where readers are today or or people who might you know, consume this kind of news. And so obviously you you have to be there, right, to be able to reach them. Um, so it makes perfect sense. But then on the other side of that, there's also the impact that a lot of these platforms have had for, you know, the revenues of, of journalism and, and how it has changed kind of incentives for especially a lot of major publications, right? Um, I would argue that one of the reasons that we see such you know, poor coverage, such little investigative work done on tech companies um, is that it has really hollowed out the financing for a lot of these major publications, right? And so they don't have the resources to really dedicate to doing these longer investigations as they may have in the past, and instead are more incentivized to churn out a lot of kind of clickbait articles, not even always clickbait, but just, you know, there always needs to be something published. And so you have less time to actually spend in looking into um, potential issues at various companies. Um, And then there's also the final piece of this is really about access as well, right? Especially in the United States, where there's a lot of of reporting on the, the tech industry, a lot of people do want to be close to a lot of people in the industry, or, you know, you need to have certain relationships in order to report on these things, you know, or at least they would argue that you need to have these relationships to report on things well, like, you know, one of the examples of this is Apple's keynote products, which, uh, you know, keynote events where they announce their new products several times a year, I would argue they're not as important as they used to be, but they used to be major events, right? But if you wrote critical stories about Apple, they would not invite you to the keynotes. And so then you weren't there to be able to report on that, to be able to get the hands-on with the products, to be able to speak to the people who are developing them. And then that really limited your ability to do the kind of reporting that other journalists were doing. And so they, the tech companies had many ways um, to try to shape the coverage as well and to try to uh, ensure that they had relationships with the journalists to try to reduce the amount of critical coverage that was done. And so, you know, there are there are a lot of things that are, that are going on there. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that what you write in the- the book that that for a long time it was considered apolitical that this was kind of beyond politics and i remember covering the obama election in 2008 and taking my two small children to finally see a progressive winning taking them to san francisco <laughs> and we were, oh he has these new he had the, these new technologies and they will enable grassroots movements and they will make progressives win and all of a sudden we can have a green transformation there were all these hopes connected to them so when we found out that these were actually not just 
technologies with huge political impact in our societies. They were actually reshaping our societies. We be, we were part of that class system as well. Absolutely. You know, it, it's interesting you bring up the Obama example, right? Because that was one of the big stories around his campaign is he was using data in these innovative ways. And it allowed like this, as you say, like progressive president to be elected, who was promising all these amazing things that many of them he didn't really deliver on in the end. But, you know, that's a that's a different story. But then, of course, 2016 comes along. And, you know, one of the stories then is that Donald the Donald Trump's campaign is using these tools in a very kind of um, forward thinking way that the Clinton campaign was not able to do was using Facebook ads very effectively. And then it's framed entirely differently, right? It's like, oh, this is, you know, really terrible. Uh, you know, these uh, technology products have enabled the election of, you know, someone, uh, you know, this this kind of far right or really extreme right wing president who would never have gotten in otherwise, right? The American people would have never voted for this if it wasn't for Facebook. Um, and so it's interesting how the narrative then shifts, right? It's really positive in 2008, but by 2016, it's not good because of who is is kind of benefiting from it. And of course, then a lot of those narratives are really kind of inflated as well, right? The, the impact that those technologies have. But as you say, like, you know, the technology products, going back to what I was saying about this idea that comes out of Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s, um, are really associated with like, you know, we can solve these problems in society, whether it's by using Uber or self-driving cars or whatever other technologies that the tech industry is, is kind of pushing on us. We can solve all these problems that exist. Um, and we don't need to do it by making difficult political decisions and, and passing laws and having debates on these things. Rather, all we need to do is develop these new technologies. You know, you, the public, give us a few years to, to work on self-driving cars or whatever, and we will roll these things out to everyone and then we will solve traffic we will eliminate uh, road deaths in in society uh, we will reduce emissions in the transportation system we will make sure that people who are underserved from the transport system right now who are waiting uh, a long time for the bus to come won't matter anymore because now there will be autonomous vehicles and you know it'll be a utopia right it'll be wonderful for everybody and then that those kind of you know great visions don't come along but the problems that they are supposed to be responding to still exist, right? Because we never actually took the political actions to solve them. And the technology was never actually going to address these deep problems that we have, whether it's in the transport system or other parts of society more generally, right? And so it allows um, these companies to distract us from these serious problems that exist, but it's also very beneficial for a lot of politicians who don't want to be doing this difficult work, right? Who don't want to be spending this political capital on trying to push forward an initiative that might initially be unpopular, whether it's unpopular with the public or certain segments of the public or with corporations that might see their profits reduced as a result of kind of taking particular actions, whether it's to reduce automotive sales or to reduce sales of fossil fuel or something like that, right? Um, the idea is we just wait for this technology and the tech companies will do it for us so we don't need to make these difficult political decisions. But what we see is that doesn't solve the problems and we still need to have those difficult political conversations if we're ever going to properly address them. In the expansion of, of tech into our society and defining our infrastructure in a lot of different ways, there was always this moment when I was looking at it from old Marxist perspective saying, well, these are not healthy businesses. You know, they keep running deficits and you can see they're running local stores out of out of business. They're running established old media out of business. They're destroying a lot and they're not generating uh, revenue themselves. Yet, how important was the in, the, in the expansion of tech, how important was the alliance between kind of venture capital, cheap money and, and the Silicon Valley? Very, very essential, right? And this is often talked about in the post-2008 period, right? We had really low interest rates after the 2008-2009 recessions. That meant it was much easier for these companies and these venture capitalists to, to access capital. But this is also this also played a really important role in earlier stages, right? If we go back to the dot-com boom, that was a big part of it as well. Or, you know, early stages of the tech industry benefited from these particular conditions. Um, and so what we, of course, see um, after 2008, as I was saying, really low interest rates, really easy access to capital. This is often called cheap money. Um, and of course, we're in a period now where that cheap money is drying up because interest rates have soared so much in the past year as governments have been trying to address um, inflation, you know, and, and of course, 
that's a that's a whole other conversation. Um, but these companies, as a result of having such easy access to capital, to venture capital, were able to develop business models where they lost a lot of money for many years, right? And the promise was that, you know, to the to the investors was that if you let us lose all this money, we will create a monopoly and then we, we will be able to use that monopoly status in order to deliver kind of excess profits back to you to make up for what we're going to lose in these number of years where we're not making any money and we're, we're burning a lot of money, right? So this was the promise. And in the case of Amazon, that worked, right? Amazon lost money for almost the first decade of its of its operation for the most part. Um, and then because it built this kind of e-commerce um, company and it also built a cloud computing infrastructure that is still number one in the world, I believe, um, that it was able to extract a lot of profit as a result of that, right? And in, in the years that have followed, it has continued to expand that business into more and more parts of society. So it owns a major grocery grocery chain in the United States. And it, ha it has a um, video streaming service platform where, you know, it's now a major kind of financer in Hollywood and just bought MGM studios. Um, and so, you know, it has continued to grow and that has allowed it to continue kind of making these profits. And so a lot of these other companies said, see what Amazon did. We are going to do the exact same thing if you just let us lose all this money for a long enough time. And of course, Uber is a perfect example of this. Its, it's argument was we're going to lose money, but we're going to kind of create a monopoly on transportation around the world. We're going to kick out all the taxis. And then because we're going to have this global service rather than just you know individual taxi companies in, in every city, that that's going to be able to make a lot of money. Um, and for many of these companies that didn't actually work out as they promised um, because they weren't able to take advantage of the economies of scale that a company like Amazon was because it was in fulfillment and cloud computing infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, that's a long way of saying that these companies promised a lot. They were unable to deliver. The business models made no sense, but it was only able to continue because, you know, it was so easy to access capital during this period. And I would also note as a final point that Yes, a company like Uber lost a lot of money over the past however many decades. So the company's never turned a profit. It's been operating since 2008 or 2009, right? Um, this, this transportation service. But that doesn't mean that the investors who first bought in didn't make a profit. You know, obviously their their ideal goal would be have to have created a monopoly and then they would have got the excess profits. But the backup in all of these cases is that as long as you can get the company to its initial public offering, you know, for it to go public on the stock market, they can still make their money back then and then they offload the company basically onto retail investors and other types of investors and the initial kind of um, venture capitalists and the investors who got in early make their money in that way when they bought in a at a really cheap price. So, you know, the, the capitalists are still kind of making off like bandits here. It's everyone else that's kind of getting fleeced along the way. So if we look back at the 20th century, and you do that in the book, go back to the beginning of, of the car, but if we move a little further, you look at the New Deal era and, and the great public investments at the time, the progressive taxation, they floated a lot of money into the economy. And we tend to look at the good effects of that, but there was also there were also a perverse effect. You built a military industrial complex uh, out of out of that money. And if you then look at the 21st century, you can see we chose, and this is a big we, I don't include myself in it for real, but formally, it was chosen by our societies to deal with a lot of social problems through our central banks and just floating money, floating money. So the dominance of tech today is kind of also a perverse consequence of this federal bank monetary policy. Oh, absolutely. You know, and as I was saying before, like you talk about the growth of the military industrial complex. Well, Silicon Valley is it's a growth out of that as well. Right. Um, you know, it's it's early development was public funding for many of the technologies that were key to the military developed there. The Internet, of course, was initially the ARPANET, which was created by um, a, a military research kind of group, you know, funded by it. Um, and many of the technologies that actually end up being released by Silicon Valley initially come out of military research, or, or at least research that's funded by the military. So it is it has benefited immensely from this. And then, of course, as you say, you know, the kind of monetary policies that were pursued by central banks have been essential to allowing a particular model of technological development and of the tech industry to kind of 
become dominant over the past number of decades. As I said, you know, this is not just post 2008. This is also, you know, the original dot com boom. The period that follows that also had another period of of lower interest rates. Um, so they benefited from this immensely. And I think that. The, the key there is not to say that there wouldn't be a tech industry or there wouldn't be a Silicon Valley without low interest rates, but rather that it took a particular form because it was able to take advantage of those low interest rates. Um, it was able to try to grow and scale up on a global scale in a, at a really accelerated rate. You know, one of the terms move fast and break things, um, which is often attributed to Mark Zuckerberg, but is said by many of the people in the Valley, is really made possible by the fact that they have such easy access to capital. And it created... Um, a, it, it created an expectation among investors that any company that is going to be invested in has to immediately grow to this massive global scale, right? You can't just have like a small software company that's going to sell to a niche market and, you know, it's just going to be happy kind of serving that niche market and not really growing beyond that. Every company that they invested in, the goal was always, how are you going to grow incredibly fast? How are you going to get like a billion customers or whatever, right? Because this was the expectation that was built in there. And so, yes, you know, the decisions by central banks then had the perverse impact on these particular tech companies. And I would say that that probably meant that the harms of the tech companies, the negative impacts that we've experienced um, have been greater as a result of that because there was such a, a, a strong incentive to grow quickly, to not to think about the consequences of everything that was going on. And, and that has you know, obviously had consequences for everyone beyond the tech industry who's been subject to these products as well. So yet again, we come to realize very political consequences of actions that at the time, of course, there were critical people saying, well, this is not apolitical. But at the time, this is like, we have to do this to save the entire financial sector, to save the, the economy. Now we're in this moment that you had a great season finale on Tech One Save Us, where you had some of your, I'm tempted to call them best friends, but they're just regular yeah. guests. Uh, guests <laughs> friends of the show, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you agreed, there was a general consensus that the mood changed over the last couple of years, that there is a critical stance now against tech, that they're not celebrated as they were, not even by the mainstream media. How strong do you think this, this opposition that is being built is? Is it just, you know, 10% intellectual critical people saying, well, people still use it and still use their, their Uber apps? And probably we, all of us are a little bit of both. We must admit that. But how strong do you think the critical position is becoming now? Yeah, it's a mix, right? I think that people are much more aware of it than they would have been, say, five or seven years ago, right? That there are downsides to these technologies. You know, you hear a lot of people just generally in the public making criticisms of companies like Facebook, right? And the impacts that they've had. Sure, they still have a Facebook account, but that because, you know, everyone basically does, um, but they recognize that they're is, is a harm that has come of this technology and the way in particular that it has been run by Mark Zuckerberg and the, and the people who are in charge of it, right? Um, and I would say that that it goes beyond that too. Like for example, with the metaverse, when that was being promoted last year as you know the next big thing that was going to come out of the tech industry, it was it was pretty clear that most people thought it was ridiculous and you know not just kind of journalists or or anyone like that like i think even among the public people who heard about this even didn't understand it a lot but were like you expect me to wear a vr headset all day and like that's how i'm supposed to communicate with people like no like that is that's not going to happen right um and so as you say i think that there's been more of a critical focus on the tech industry in the past few years and even if that doesn't mean everyone is critical of everything that the tech industry does, there's a broader expectation or um, people are more prepared to hear that there might be a downside to some of these things that the tech industry is putting out there rather you know, than they would have been in the past. And the other key piece of that, I think, is that having this critical perspective and um, ensuring that we look critically at these technologies as they're being released or as they're being promoted by the tech industry, um, 
allows us, or, or I think gives us an opportunity to push back at an earlier stage and to ensure that, you know, they can't go for five years um, being treated like they're saving the world when actually there are a lot of harms that are being kind of brushed under the rug because, you know, we just want to be excited and we, and we just want to believe what these tech companies are telling us. And I think we see part of that in the metaverse, but also in the promotion of cryptocurrencies and Web3 through the pandemic, right? The, the argument was that this was the next big thing. It was going to kind of upend the tech industry and, and how we all relate to technology. And it looks pretty clear now, especially after the implosion of FTX, that that um, vision for the future is not going to be realized and that there were a lot of harms that came from it, right? A lot of people were scammed out of money over the past two years because of the promises that were being made around cryptocurrencies. Um, and so, you know, as we enter this, this period now where we think about what is coming next, I think that when we think about the media and how the media covers this, there is a more critical perspective that's already kind of there, right? That a lot of journalists are used to having when they're reporting on these companies. But in the same way that, you know, there was a lot of excitement around various products, say, you know, between 2009 through to 2015, um, there is still, a, there are still a lot of people in tech media who are excited when new things come along and who really want to believe in them, right? Um, and so right now, of course, we're in this moment where chat GPT and stable diffusion, these kind of um, writing and, and image AIs are being promoted as one of the next big things that the tech industry is going to bring us. And certainly there's been a lot of critical writing and, and critical reporting on these tools. But at the same time, there are also a lot of people who are, you know, kind of tied up in this kind of hype narrative, this hype bubble that we're in at the moment, and who really do want to believe that this is going to upend everything as we've been promised so many times in the past. I think the reality is going to be more you know, nuanced than that. I think it's going to have some impacts and I think it's going to have some downsides, but it's not going to change everything as, as we know it today. And so I think that having that critical perspective there is really key if we want a proper understanding of where the tech industry might be going and to also identify the problems earlier. So hopefully we can try to rectify them or even say like this technology that you're promoting is just completely unacceptable. It's it's not positive in any way and we don't want anything to do with it, which I think that we saw with the metaverse and with uh, cryptocurrencies. Looking at the political system, I think it's clear, and, and this has been very interesting to see in the U.S., that sometimes the Republicans and the Democrats actually agree on being against the big tech for different reasons and for, for different motivations. But but I feel like I have a son who's 17, and he, he told me the other day that now it's like Elon Musk, he doesn't even have to seem like a nice guy anymore. Now he's become so powerful, so he can just brag. And we have the European commissioner from Denmark that we're very proud of, Margarita Veste, who's taking on big tech, loses sometimes. But he said, well, now we see their power, but they, it's reached a level where we can't reach it. We're still Australia and they're still Facebook. Uh, and that's for, for him growing up kind of a metaphor for, for the balance of, of strength. How do you see the balance of strength uh, between democracy and big tech? I know it's a big question. Yeah, that, that's okay, though. I, I think I think it's a difficult question, but it's also an important question, right? Um, I think... There has been a lot more discussion in the United States in recent years around regulation of the tech industry um, and the need to do those things. And certainly, I think that a lot of people in North America have been inspired in some ways by what um, Europe and, and various countries in Europe and the European Union have been doing, because they're certainly further ahead on this question than we are over here. Um, but I think at the same time, then you also see the conflicts, as you're saying, between you know, big tech between the power of these companies and between the political system. And, you know, I don't think it's controversial to say that the American political system is is damaged in in many ways, right? Has has really lost a lot of the power that it had, at least when it comes to regulating industries. Certainly, you know, it can still pass a defense budget that is enormously large, but when it actually comes to, uh, you know, protecting people from domestic industry, that can be a bit more difficult for them. Um, and so even though there's been discussion in the United States around regulations on technology, around antitrust or competition policy, like breaking up some of these companies or putting restrictions on some of their actions, um, there's been quite a lot less actual um you know laws passed or legislation passed to do those things um and what we see with the republicans taking over um the house right now in the united states um is that 
it's unlikely that that is going to happen anytime in the next couple of years. Uh, the Democrats had a series of bills that were kind of ready to go, um, but they weren't brought to a vote before they lost control of the House. Um, these, you know, around competition measures and, and things like that. And so that means that it's very unlikely that action is going to be taken against the tech companies. And they were kind of celebrating the fact that these laws were not brought to a vote before the, the Republicans took over. Because even though the Republicans um, like to make a big deal over some of the tech companies and you know the, the social media platforms in particular, they're not really going to support breaking up these companies. What they're looking for is to have a greater say in how content is managed mm -hmm. on the platforms to make sure that right-wing content is you know shared more on on the platform something that they've been very effective at ensuring happens by you know constantly saying that they're being silenced when they're they're actually not um and so yeah it's it's a it's a difficult position right because what we do really need and as we've been talking about this whole conversation, the political aspect of this is essential, right? If we really want to ensure that these companies are held to account, are restrained in any way, um, if we ever want to see technology kind of really serve the public interest rather than you know the the profits of these major companies, we do need the government to act to put proper regulation in place. I would say to even go further than that and think about you know public technologies that are not subject to the profit motive. Um, but that seems kind of unimaginable <laughs> in the United States right now. Um, th these things are, are very important, right? But it's it's very difficult to see how they're going to move forward in the United States. Maybe on, some of the states in, in the United States might do some things, but on a national level, it seems it seems unlikely that it's going to happen. And the final point I would make there is what makes it even less likely is that the United States is kind of entering this, this posture with China where they're presenting it as though um, you know, the United States and the West need to compete against China to maintain technological dominance. And that is really a gift to these major tech companies because they will argue that if you break us up, right? If you try to limit our activities, mm. then we won't be able to keep up with the Chinese tech companies, right? And they will surpass us. They will beat us essentially. Um, and I think that for some people, for maybe a lot of people um, in Washington, that is a very kind of compelling argument, um, especially as they're looking for their new kind of geopolitical foe um, as China kind of challenges their, their international power. So that's another thing to keep watching. <laughs> One last question. One thing that makes me hopeful is that I think that this paradigm of tech and their political power, it grew out of an era where the consumer was more important than the citizen and, and the work. And you can even see it in the antitrust policies. They were changed through the 70s and, and 80s. And now it's all about protecting the consumer. We don't mind how big the companies are if the consumer gets cheaper product. And you can see it through all the free trade agreements like the NAFTA and the TTIP that was cancelled ultimately. And I'm very hopeful about the Biden administration in this specific point. You have Catherine Tai coming out saying, well, actually, the most important thing about American trade policies are American workers and not American consumers. And I, I see a, a little bit, a tendency to a shift in paradigm here that makes me hopeful. Are there any signs uh, at the moment that makes you hopeful in this battle against big tech? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I'd say I'm generally a pessimist, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I I do think that there are positive moves being made, even if they're not being done fast enough, right? Um, uh, I think that some of the rhetoric in the United States is great. I I would like to see more action to kind of follow up on that. Um, you know, California passed some privacy, a, a new privacy law in the past couple of years that, you know, has its problems, but is an improvement. Um, I know that people are still fighting for a national privacy law in the United States. So hopefully that, you know, more awareness around these problems can bring developments on that front. Um, I would say one thing that does keep me hopeful is seeing how workers in the gig economy, like Uber drivers or food delivery workers, continue to fight for their rights and to try to be uh, recognized as employees rather than independent contractors. And there've been a lot of wins that they have racked up in recent years by going through the courts, 
um, and trying to in basically getting the courts to recognize that they should be um, deemed employees rather than than contractors pushing back against Uber and these major companies that are lobbying very heavily um, to try to ensure that you know they're basically carved out of uh, legal protections. And I know that's a fight that's ongoing in Europe as well with the uh, I believe it's the Platform Work Directive in the European Union, um, and and that's a fight that that's still happening over there. And hopefully you know it comes out on on workers' side. I would also say that you know there are there are attempts at regulation happening in many different countries that are important to watch because often when something happens in one country, it can be emulated in others in the way that the GDPR was passed in the EU. And then that has inspired other countries to pursue similar kinds of regulations. I do think even though that there is this growing divide between the the West and China, China has been doing a lot of regulation of its tech industry in recent years. It doesn't mean that we need to agree with everything that they're doing, but I think that there's also been some really interesting attempts at regulation that have been going on there that we should probably try to watch around regulation of algorithms, regulation of gig work, and things like that that might provide some kind of hints as to where we might go to try to take on the power of these tech companies because you know even though some people in the media or or in in politics would try to cast the west and china as being very different you know we have very different political systems and things like that the tech industries in both of these countries are quite similar right in in the consumer oriented nature of many of the tech products and the impacts and harms that they have on consumers as you're saying and so, yeah, I think that there's still a lot that we can that can be learned there. But just generally, I would like to see more action quicker um, on these tech companies, and and hopefully, you know, ensuring that we have this critical perspective, continuing to be critical of new technologies that are introduced by these companies. Hopefully, that kind of creates an environment where it's easier to get these kind of legal or or political actions happening quicker than they might have been in the past. You know, that's a hope. Uh, <laughs> and I would say one final thing: that listening to Tech Won't Save Us is definitely inspirational. It's very hopeful. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you, Perry Marx. Absolutely. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me. It was it was really great conversation. Det var min samtale med Paris Marx. Jeg vil gentage Paris Marx bog hedder The Road to Nowhere: What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, og Paris podcast hedder Tech Won't Save Us, og der kan man finde alle de steder, hvor man ellers lytter til podcast. I næste uge skal vi gennemføre en samtale, som jeg har glædet mig meget til. Vi har nemlig de seneste år talt utrolig meget om geopolitik i Dagbladet Information og i offentligheden i øvrigt. Og jeg har tit tænkt over, hvad betyder egentlig geopolitik? Ofte bruger man det bare som udtryk for sådan en magtkamp eller gammeldags realistisk opfattelse af storpolitik. Men hvad betyder geopolitik egentlig? Og hvad betyder det for os, at vi er begyndt at tænke geopolitisk? Den bedste, jeg kunne komme op med til at besvare det spørgsmål, er den tysk-italienske politiske filosof Stefano Guzzini, der er professor på Universitetet i Uppsala, professor på Universitetet i Rio, og også research fellow her på DIS i København. Så det bliver i næste uge, hvor vi tager den store tur igennem geopolitikken. Jeg lover, det bliver interessant, og vi når frem til en ny kritik af krigsretorikken og krigsstemningen i vores tid. Men før vi når så langt, så skal vi igennem en hel masse andet. Men det er i næste uge. Og så vil jeg sige, at der er rigtig mange, der længe har spurgt mig, når jeg møder dem, om, hvorfor kan man ikke høre informationsartikler? Det er så rart at tilgå information, uden samtidig at skulle læse. Ja, det er der faktisk nogen, der siger. Og der bliver jeg nødt til at sige, at efterhånden så har vi fået oplæst så mange artikler, som man faktisk kan lytte til en hel times oplæste artikler hver eneste dag fra Dagbladet Information. Så hvis man gerne vil information, men man er træt af at læse, hvis man er vildt optaget af vores indhold, men synes, man skal glo nok på bogstaver i løbet af dagen, så kan vi nu tilbyde både på vores hjemmeside, men også hvis man downloader vores app, som man også kan finde i sin sædvanlige app store, hvis man bare søger på information, der kan man finde en masse oplæste artikler hver eneste dag. En sidste ting herfra. Der er rigtig mange også, som siger, hvordan kan I være at lave alt det her gratis indhold? Må vi ikke nok bidrage til forretningen? Og selvfølgelig må I gerne bidrage til forretningen og bevægelsen, hvis I gerne vil det. Der må jeg sige, der går man bare ind på information.dk og skriver sig op. Så kan man få en måned gratis. Det bliver fuld adgang hele ugen digitalt, og så får man avisen på print fredag og lørdag. Jeg vil dog advare, det er et tilbud, som for rigtig mange mennesker har vist sig at blive voldsomt vanedannende. Hvis man omvendt 
har brug for en opløst, kritisk og progressiv ledsager gennem resten af sit liv, så kan man altid starte med fire uger gratis. Det kan jeg i hvert fald stærkt anbefale. Den her uges podcast var ligesom alle andre langsomme samtaler, redigeret af vores gode ven og tålmodige hjælper, Anne Pilgaard Petersen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge, hvor det altså skal handle om geopolitik.